Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. So when it came to prepping for this morning, it was interesting, to say the least. I don't know if you've ever really considered uh, what it would be like to, to prepare a lesson the day after Christmas, the week before the New Year, right? So we're still kind of celebrating the reason for the season while also looking at the resolutions to come. Uh, and, and so really, as I was trying to maneuver through this, I had prepped a whole lesson, uh, and then yesterday was like, yeah, I just don't like it. Yeah, I, it's just not it. And so uh, thank the Lord for Seth Westmoreland, who was very patient with me. Uh, so I typed a whole new one and sent it to him, uh, and he does a lot of our slide work and stuff like that. And so, um, but I was, I was very torn on, on where to take this. And so all I could think of is, how could I capture both, right? How could I capture coming off of Christmas and celebrating the coming of Jesus Christ, but also capture this idea of moving forward, right? Because in reality, Scripture says that his mercies are new every day. And so we shouldn't be thinking January 1st every year, new me. Like every day, new me. Every day, putting off the old man and living in the new, right? And so as I was thinking through these things, I'm like, how, do I, how can I capture both of those things? And so uh, I chose a passage I'm not going to read just yet, but Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Uh, and I just want to let you know that my goal today is to do a couple of things. Number one, uh, I do want to confront you. I really do. I want to confront you. Uh, I want to confront your idolatries. I want to confront your sin. But I also want to encourage you. And I don't want to encourage you in you, I want to encourage you in Christ, right? Something lasting, uh, because we're way too fickle uh, to be comforted in ourselves. And so uh, if I could just go ahead and throw out a big idea, it's going to be very simple, which tends to be my thing. Uh, my big idea is this, and it is from Hebrews 12, uh, look unto Jesus. It is that simple. Right? And so we, yesterday we celebrated looking unto Jesus, the birth of the Savior, and then what we're about to do, what I want for you, is that as we move forward, that we be consistently, as our resolution, daily looking unto Jesus. Not today, but daily moving forward, looking unto Jesus. And so I'm going to read the passage, it's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, uh, and then we're going to break down some uh, a few parts of it, and then I want to apply it demographically, right? I want to apply it demographically. And so Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the author says this. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated the place of honor beside, God, beside God's throne. Now the context, uh, I don't know how big you are on words. Transitional words are a little bit of an odd passion for me. It's very weird. Uh, but he starts it out with saying, therefore, and so he's asking us to look back. And so contextually, what we're looking at is Hebrews chapter 11, right? And in Hebrews chapter 11, if you know that a lot of people call it the hall of faith, 
Uh, and it's all these people uh, starting from, from like Adam and, and, and Abel and, and their acts of faith. Uh, and how they were commended. And essentially what Hebrews 11 is doing is really kind of verifying uh, the book of Romans, right? That the just shall live by faith. Uh, and so he's showing us, the author of Hebrews is showing us all, all of these beautiful dynamics from all these Old, Old Testament characters and how they had lived by faith and by faith they had pleased God. And he says, therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses or such a great crowd as some would put it. There's a lot of people that uh, they really like to dissect that idea a lot, which I don't really care to do because I don't know. You got really two schools of thought. Some people believe that what he's talking about is the saints who are seated in heaven and how they're watching us. Other people think, no, he's just speaking to their life being a testimony to faith. Uh, And I think maybe it's both. Why can't it be, right? That's not contradictory for it to be both. Uh, and so we do, we have, we have the entire Old Testament that's been given to us to comfort us and teach us and show us and train us in righteousness while simultaneously showing us those saints of old who have entered into glory, right? And they're still from above watching God's plan of salvation unfold on the earth along with the angels who, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, have been longing to look into this salvation, this glorious salvation that's such a mystery, Unfolding that for some odd reason, some people think they have it figured out. But then he calls us to strip off every weight that slows us down and the sin that so easily trips us up. And where I think a lot of times I would want to sit on these two points for the whole sermon, that's not what I'm going to do, but I am going to explain these two points really quickly. The imagery being given in Hebrews chapter 12 uh, is the imagery of a a first century marathon runner, an Olympic marathon runner, or a wrestler. Right, uh, And so when he says to strip off every weight that slows us down, if any of you ever watch anything Olympic-related, you have to understand that you are dealing with the most well-conditioned athletes on the entire planet in what they do. Now, I don't know about 2,000 years ago, uh, but I do know today what they really focus on, because we have a lot more science behind what we do today, uh, but nevertheless, then, they did the same thing. Listen, body fat percentage, if you're a marathon runner, you're running 26.2 miles, you don't need any excess body weight whatsoever. None, none. You never see a jacked marathon runner. It doesn't happen. They're normally thin guys, very lean, but also at the same time, and this is, I don't know if they knew this 2,000 years ago, but they know it today, uh, hormonally, we also need a little bit of body fat, right? You get too lean, your hormones shut off. You can't perform to your peak. What we're dealing with here is some guys, the author is showing us some guys to focus on, that they are so single-minded in their pursuit, that their life is down to a science. Everything they eat, every activity, every hour of sleep, down to a science. And he's calling us to do the same. Lay aside anything that would slow you down in your pursuit of Christ. I heard one commentator uh, said it like this. He says, listen, in your life with Christ, if it doesn't help, it only hinders. And I thought, good night, man. Like, that hurts, right? But it's true. If it doesn't help, it's only hindering. It's not moving us forward. But then secondly, he says, and the sin that so easily trips us up. 
Now there's an image there of what a first century runner would often do, uh, and hopefully this isn't too crass. Uh, they, they would run nude, completely naked. Uh, and the reason is because you can't wear robes and scarves and things like that when you're running a marathon. As your body sweats, it starts to cling to you. It messes up your stride. There's all kinds of various things that, that, that these excess robes would do. And so what they would do oftentimes before running is they would strip down completely naked before running a marathon. Now, that's very uncomfortable for me, but that's what they would do. And the author of Hebrews is telling us to lay aside anything that is hindering our stride, right? What does sin do? It cripples us so often. If you think of Jacob's pride, what ended up having to happen? God had to break his hip and he walked with a limp. Sin so often breaks our stride. It messes up our fluent movement. And Charles Spurgeon, and this is, I'm paraphrasing this and I'll probably butcher it because he's a way better uh, preacher than I am. But Charles Spurgeon would say it like this. He'd say, the more objects that you have your heart set upon, the more thorns to tear apart your peace of mind. Right? And how clearly would we say that that's kind of what the author of Hebrews is saying? Be single-minded in your pursuit. Like, like Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, that we would seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. God will take care of everything else. Why are you worried about things you can't control? Set your mind on the one thing that matters, the one quest for which you were created, which is to know your God. And so he moves on and he says we do this in order to run the race with endurance, the race that God has set before us. And I think this idea of endurance is very interesting. Uh, James uses a very similar wording. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 he says this, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. And now, this was an interesting one for me for a long time. Uh, I don't know about you, but patience has never seemed like a very cool concept to me. You know what I mean? It's just like, uh, fantastic, like I can be a patient person. I, I'm a little too intense, a little too extreme to be so worried about things like patience, right? Even though I understand it's a gift of the, of the Spirit, I'm not, I'm not saying it's lesser. I'm, I'm, it's my own fault, okay? Uh, but then once I kind of understood what biblical patience really is, it really changed the game for me. I think oftentimes when we think about patience, uh, we tend to think, and I had this, uh, a minor knee surgery last Thursday, and listen, for the past few weeks, I've been sitting in doctor's offices a lot. Uh, and you go, man, it takes a lot of patience to just sit there in those doctor's offices, right? You're just waiting and waiting and waiting. I'm like, it does. I don't like being bored, right? And so I'm just sitting there and I'm like, oh my gosh, can this process go faster? I think for a lot of us, we tend to think when we talk patience, that's what we think James means. That's what we think it means to run with endurance or run with patience, the race set before us. And it doesn't. It doesn't. Because that is a very inactive patience. There's actually an image that comes behind this in the Greek. How many of you have heard of Atlas? 
right? Everybody knows who Atlas is, not the book, uh, but, but the, the Greek mythological character that has to hold the earth on his back, right? Now, that was cool to me because I love strength stuff, right? And so I'm like, man, this guy just sits under the weight of the earth on his back. And that's the image they have. When they talk about patience or endurance, they're not just saying just this passive sitting there uh, and just trying to deal with it, but actually being put under a load and being able to bear it over long periods of time. Right? When I think about running a marathon, there is nothing exciting about that to me. Nothing. Uh, now, for some reason, I'd be very fascinated if you said, hey, Daniel, uh, carry this sandbag for 26.2 miles. I would be like, man, I really have to try that. Because I love, the, I love the challenge behind it. But to just say, hey, go run it, I'm like, man, nothing on earth could be less attractive to me. But the idea of adding something onto me and having to try and endure that, man, that's attractive. I love the challenge. And so understand, when we're called to run this race with endurance, he is not talking about some passive sitting by and just letting life happen while you just wait for the day of glory. But to be actively and proactively under weight, under tension, under trial and affliction. But now notice how he tells us to do it. And this is where I'm gonna kinda of end with Hebrews chapter 12. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. And this is where for some people, they go, okay, yeah, Jesus, Sunday school answers where we kinda of check out because I already know that. I don't think that you do know that. Uh, and let, so let me do something really quick. I told you all that I wanted to apply this demographically, right? Uh, and so let me, let, me, let me hit home for a second. Uh, and this is where I really want to start to confront some of your idols. And this might make you uneasy. And I'm okay with that because the Bible should make us uneasy. We live in the Bible belt. I don't know if you all know that. Maybe some of you are like, what? We do. We live in the Bible Belt, where majority of everyone inside the Bible Belt thinks that they're a Christian. They really do. And what they think is that Christian is just a social class that you kind of choose to enter into, right? You just, well, that's the part, I want to be along with that party. And so they kind of click into it. And sometimes they get very discouraged living. Now, I will say this. In the Bible Belt, we tend to have more peaceful lives, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. But do you know how hard it is? to minister to people who automatically think they're a Christian? It can be one of the most difficult things on the planet, and here's why. Because what people who think they're Christians want is they just want to know, what do I need to do with my life so that I can do it right? And that's not necessarily bad. But you know, Nicodemus came to Jesus and had the same question. Hey, what's the, what's the teaching you have for us? And Jesus said, hey, uh, religious leader of your day, you must be born again. You can't even see the kingdom of heaven. We've got so many people that think that being a Christian is just some verbal consent, some intellectual acknowledgement. They don't understand that's a spiritual rebirth. It's funny that when we think about being a Christian, how many people, and listen, I'm not, I have no intention on trying to speak to anyone in general in the audience, but if this calls you out, this calls you out. 
We think because we read our Bible daily, we're a Christian. We think because we have a prayer life, we're a Christian. We think because we attend a church, we're a Christian. We think because we're involved in groups that suddenly we're a Christian. But I don't know that that's biblically what it means to be a Christian. And I, would, like, I remember a few years ago talking to a young guy who was, who was really wavering in his faith and living a very sinful life intentionally sinful life and I remember him telling me he said well no don't worry I'm still reading my Bible and praying so I'm still a Christian and I'm going what like you think you're a Christian because you check off these two boxes once a day or once a week or whatever that's not being a Christian that's not being a Christ follower Being a Christ follower is looking unto Jesus, and what tends to kill me is how many of us, we fill the part, but man, we lack the heart completely. I think about uh, one of the, in, in Revelation chapter three is, as you know, Jesus is confronting the churches of the first century in the first part of the book of Revelation, and to one of the churches, he says this, and this terrified me. Verse one, I know all the things you do that you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Now here's why that scared me. To the outside world, they looked at that church and go, man, they are living it, right? These guys must be like super believers or something. If I could bring it to our era, they're having the pumpkin patch every year, they have their groups and all the members are there and they're doing all their parts and man, the services, people are just flooding in and the worship and all these things and, and the outside world is looking in and going, man, they're so alive in Christ but then Christ looks at them and says, yeah, everybody thinks that but really you're dead. Man, you fit all the parts but you don't know me. Please understand something. I'm happy if you're reading your Bible and you're going to church and you're doing all those things, but that does not make you a believer. Here's why it makes me happy, because God will work through it and you'll be born again. I love that. I love that. But doing those things does not make you a believer. It does not make you a Christ follower. I think about Matthew chapter 15 when Jesus is speaking to the most religious people of the day, right? People that, listen, if they walked in this room right now and we didn't know any better, we would almost bow down to how spiritual and how religious they are. Guys who would have had the first five books of the Bible memorized, if not the whole Old Testament, the entire thing memorized by heart. How many verses do you have memorized, right? These guys didn't memorize verses, they memorized books. And listen to what he says to him. Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They wor their worship of me is a farce. In other words, it's fake. It's an act. For they teach man-made ideas as commandments from God. And how, man, just going off the few examples I've given so far today. But I have a quiet time every day. Where's that command in the Bible? It's encouraged, sure. 
And I think a Christian who loves Jesus should want to do that. You know what's commanded in Scripture? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You could have all the quiet times in the world still hate people. You're not a believer. I'm going to be very clear about that. Know all the Scripture you want. If your heart doesn't burn with passion toward the Lord and you don't love people, you're not, what, I mean, what did Jesus say in the Gospel of John? Did he say they're going to know you uh, by your study? They're going to know you by your meditation? They're going to know you by your prayer? Absolutely not. How are they going to know you're my disciples? By your love for one another. Jesus looks to the people who call out uh, who know the scriptures, man. And this, this, listen, this one hurts me because I love scripture. I love to study. I remember one time meeting with Mike Wilson. He just kind of called me out. He's like, Daniel, man, you sit at home and you study the scriptures. You know better than most people I know. And I'm like, oh, thanks, Mike. Such a compliment. He's like, but what are you doing in your life to actually live them out? It seems like you're just tucking away because that's your safe place. And I'm like, huh, come on, man. You're supposed to compliment me, right? But he tore me down. And I remember coming across this passage where Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders again, because that's normally who he confronts, is the religious people, right, Bible Belt? Right? And this is what he says. He says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. You're reading this book the whole time like a road map but you think the whole thing's about you. The whole time it's been directing you toward me is what Christ says, and you miss it. You utterly and completely miss it. And remember our big idea, look unto Jesus. What's the Bible pointing you to? Jesus. When we're not living in such a manner, you wanna, here's how you can know. I shared this last time I preached in here, which I don't remember when that was, uh, but back in March, April, I had this weird heart issue that was going on, kind of scared me, thought I was about to die, uh, legitimately, I like, thought I was going into heart failure, and so I'm like, I'm about to stand before the Lord, right, and it kind of scared me, because I'm thinking, man, have I done enough, right, and then have I really lived out what I'm preaching to this degree, like it really weighed down on me, it really freaked me out, I'm sitting in this room by myself, and I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready to stand before him. And then I remember, as I sat there kind of scared, like I don't know if you've ever thought about standing before G, like your life is fixing to end and you're about to stand before him. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna say? And I remember in this moment of panic, just kind of feeling this peace and realizing, Daniel, why were you ever gonna enter into the kingdom in the first place? Has nothing to do with me. Why will I enter in? Because God is merciful. The end. I'm not going to add anything on to that. There is no God is merciful and, Daniel, you were pretty decent. There was nothing, there is nothing decent about me other than Christ in me, and that's only because God is merciful. Jeremiah chapter 9, I remember shortly after this, sitting on, on, on the side of Lake Somerville and reading this passage and being rocked 
Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom, nor the powerful boast in their power, or don't let the rich boast in their riches. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord. When you're fixing to stand before me, you're going to go, okay, let me put the resume together really quickly. Lord, here's all the things that I did. Look what you've tried to boast in. What's your confidence in? If you were to stand before him right now, Christ crucified or you tried your best? If it's you tried your best, you lose. Anything, anything other than this, is dead works. Anything. I think often, uh, going back to Revelation 3, we're all over the place, I hope you're excited about that. Going back to Revelation chapter 3, uh, Jesus speaking to the church of Laodicea, right? And this is the popular one, for those of you who know Revelation. This is the, pop, the, the lukewarm church, right? Let's look at what Jesus says to him. I know all the things you do, that you're neither hot nor cold, I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are lukewarm, you're like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I have everything that I need, I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you, Jesus says, I advise you to buy from me gold that has been purified by fire. Then you'll be rich. Also, buy white garments from me so that you won't be ashamed by your nakedness, an ointment for your eyes so that you'll be able to see. What's the, what's the accusation against the church? What's the confrontation? You're lukewarm. Now, this is where a lot of people mistake this, and this is why I have to speak to the Bible Belt so clearly. Well, we need to be praying more, and we need to be evangelizing more, and we need to be reading our Bibles more, and we need to be doing more stuff to show that we're not lukewarm. I'm like, oh, you're going to prove something to him all of a sudden? Like he's just hoping that you get it together? I remember sitting in a class and a guy launching out a discussion post on that. He said, you know, Christians who aren't sharing the gospel, they're just lukewarm. And I, I remember going, okay, you, you don't belong as a junior in Bible college yet because you don't yet know how to read a passage. Listen to what Jesus says. Why are they lukewarm? Because they don't think they need Jesus. They comfort themselves in the fact that they're reading their Bible a lot, and that they're praying a lot, and that they're sharing the gospel a lot, so that when they stand before him, they'll go, Lord, look at all the things I've done. Jesus says, you don't understand. You are utterly bankrupt spiritually. You have nothing. Isaiah 64, 6, all your good deeds are nothing but filthy rags before him. And you think you're going to come before him by your way in? You're lukewarm because you think you don't need him. And you don't realize you have nothing else. Look unto Jesus. One of the scariest passages in all the Bible, right? And yet one of the most oddly encouraging. I don't really understand how this works. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. 
right? It's not going to be on the screen because I just kind of wanted to touch on it a little bit. But Jesus, speaking of that end day when judgment comes, right, he says that not everyone who comes to me saying, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, I don't know if you pick up, there's going to be people who come and say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, no. But then following that, not those who say, Lord, Lord, in the kingdom of heaven, only those who do the will of my Father. So what's these people's rebuttal to that? Only those who do the will of my Father. What's, what's the rebuttal? But Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many miraculous works in your name? And I'll say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What are these people doing? They're like the church of Laodicea. What's their resume? Lord, look what all I've done for you. Don't I earn the kingdom? Aren't I entitled to it? But what are they missing? They never knew him. They never knew him. You see, my fear is that some of you leave this place thinking I'm telling you to go live a harder life for Jesus, but I'm telling you to look unto him so that in the end you don't hear that. I want you to know that you know him more than anything in the world. Because that's our calling more than anything in the world. And so we lay aside. Why do we lay aside every, every weight that slows us down and the sin that, that clings so closely so that we can know him? Anything that steals your vision, right? It's kind of like Peter. When Peter got out of the boat to walk on the water, right? The famous get out of your comfort zone verse that that's way taken out of context. What, what, what's, what's happening? Peter says, Lord, command me, I'll come out. Steps out of the boat, starts to walk on water, everything's going swimming. Like, I couldn't imagine what the other disciples are thinking. They're like, oh my, like imagine seeing someone walking on water after just being in a boat, normal human like you. But then where does he go wrong? He looks at the winds and the waves and he panics because he took his eyes off Jesus. He starts to look at, do I even have this ability? You do not have the ability. You need Jesus Christ, and you have nothing but him. Why do I want to confront you this morning? Because I want you to know that you have nothing but him, and you can have nothing but him. It is not Jesus and, it is not Jesus plus, it is Jesus Christ and him alone. Look unto him. Look unto him. I want you to know something. That was God's plan from the beginning. I don't know if you thought that maybe God created Adam and he was like, ah, it didn't work. <laughs> let's, let's send Jesus in there, right? God's plan was never Adam. What does Paul say in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15? Adam was just a type of the one to come. He's a foreshadow. He's a little foretaste. When you look at Adam, you should see one that was meant to represent Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever really thought about the Bible that way or really all of creation that way. When you think about all of it, right? Like I think about Psalm 19, that the heavens and the earth declare the glory of God. Like all, everything that you look at is meant to speak about him. Before God created a single thing, his entire goal was that everything he created would center around Jesus Christ. That's the aim. 
hey, you know, we just passed Christmas, right, where he's the reason for the season. And I have a, I don't remember when I wrote it, but I just remember writing his Facebook post a few years ago, and it comes up as a reminder every year, so I repost it on Christmas Eve, and I thought it'd be good to read right now, right, to, to think about this for a second. Yes, Jesus is the reason for the season. However, he's also the reason for all of existence throughout every moment of history, in the life of every living organism, to the farthest reaches of the universe, from the most vast galaxy to the smallest microorganism, even to the finest detail of each individual grain of sand on every planet in the universe. All things exist by him and for him, and nothing exists outside of his will and purpose. When you look at the creation, do you look unto Jesus? But it goes beyond that. Right? If you think about Psalm, Psalm 19, first half of it, look at the creation, how, how it beholds his glory, how it tells of his glory. But then the second half of it, what does it do? It moves to the word. It moves to the law, how pure and spiritual and beautiful and how life-giving it is. Well, what does the law point to, right? We talked about John chapter 5. The whole thing points to him. Luke chapter 24 in the road to Emmaus. Who's, Jesus talks to the two disciples. They misunderstood the scriptures. So what does he do? He takes them through the law and the prophets, show how the whole thing was pointing to him. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul goes and preaches to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians is considered to be the first letter written in the New Testament, which means there was no New Testament letters. You know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2? He said, I came to you knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified. What text did he use to preach that? The Old Testament. The whole thing points to Jesus. So when you read the word, look unto Jesus. There's a really long quote that I'm going to read. I've read it in here before. It's my favorite quote in the entire world. Very long. It's not going to be on the slides. Just bear with me and be in awe for a second. All right? That's what I want. I just want you to be in awe for a second of God who is the greatest author of all times. Tim Keller wrote this quote, and it's regarding all the characters of the Bible. Listen to what he says. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, though innocently slain has blood that now cries out, not for our condemnation but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and familiar and to go out into the void not knowing whither he went to create a new people for God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your own son, your only son whom you love from me, now we look to God, taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve so that we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord, and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes and saves his stupid friends. 
Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk leaving the earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly palace, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, the innocent, perfect, helpless slain so that the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible really is not about you, it's about him. You read Hebrews chapter 11, you see all these characters of the faith. Man, please don't you dare leave here saying, Daniel told me to go be like David. Do you understand what the Bible does? The Bible makes it very clear and goes to the next step in order to stain the reputation of every biblical character except one. Do you know why? Because there's only one Savior. Look unto him. Look unto Jesus. I quoted Jeremiah chapter 9 earlier about our boast, and it's really interesting uh, where this whole thing seems to tie in, and this is where we really looked him the absolute most. Uh, Paul quotes that verse, actually. He quotes that passage from Jeremiah 9 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and the way he does it, he says that God, uh, for our sake, has made Jesus Christ to be wisdom from God, uh, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that the one who boasts will boast in the Lord. You see, when we look to Jesus, if you look to every character of the Bible, what you find is some loss or some hit that had to be taken in order for a people to be spared. What's our loss? You were created to look unto him and unto him alone, and you have not. You look to yourself, you look to your own works, you look to your own way of life, you look to your own salvation, you look to your own meaning, your own purpose. And because of that, we've rebelled against our God, we've rebelled against the center of all existence and the purpose, and we try to create a purpose of our own. And so what God has done in his love from Genesis chapter one all the way through the whole Bible has shown us that there was gonna be one to come, right? The great proto-evangelium from Genesis chapter three when God promises that one would come, born of the woman and crush the head of the serpent. What did we celebrate yesterday? That's right, we celebrated the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That Satan came in and he sowed sin into the world, and what sin has done is it has blinded our minds from the glory of God. Have you ever considered Romans chapter 1? You have this list of really heinous sins that everybody's committing, and this is especially, by, I'm going to keep hitting Bible Belt, especially Bible Belt. Man, you guys hear sexual immorality, murder, thievery, and you're like, yeah, those people, but you, don't, you ignore gossips and, and slanderers and liars and greedy people and those who envy and are jealous, right? We ignore the, the small ones, not realizing that all of that's the stain of sin and what makes it happen. What does Paul say in Romans 1? Why? Because they don't know God. They refuse to acknowledge him as God. Satan's blinded the minds of every unbeliever to where they cannot see the glory of God. But what God has done is he sent Jesus Christ who crushed the head of the serpent and lifted the veil off. So that in the death of Christ, death and sin were conquered and taken to the grave. 
And scripture says that by faith in Jesus Christ, our eyes have been opened to where we can once again see the glory of God. And so how foolish is it, like what Paul says to the Galatians, you've begun by faith in the spirit, now you're gonna return to works? (laughs) Come on, man. That stuff failed you the whole time anyway. What should we be doing? Colossians chapter one, no, Colossians chapter two, just as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How do you receive him? By faith. What is faith? Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Behold him. Look unto him who died for your sins. And what's beautiful about it is when we look unto Jesus, it's going to do two things for us. It'll strip you of all pride and it will heal you of all despair. It will strip you of all pride and it will heal you of all despair. Some of you go, what do you mean it's going to strip me of all pride? Well, let's consider for a second that though you don't think you're that bad, You're so depraved in sin that it took God's son coming down from heaven to die on a cross in order for you to be justified. That should be humbling. But it'll also ease you of all all despair. What does that mean? When your conscience condemns you and the law comes crashing in, you can look to the one who was crushed on your behalf, who according to Galatians 3.13 saved us from the curses of the law by becoming a curse for us. Him who knew no sin, yet God made him sin on our behalf so that we could be the righteousness of God in him. Look unto him. Have your pride utterly crushed. Have your despair completely removed because there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It also holds all the power for transformation, right? I don't know if you, if you know the, the, the purpose of your Christ followerness. I don't know how to word that, right? To be a Christ follower means to follow him, right? To live like him, to look like him. The downside for some of you guys is you're deceived into thinking that what that means is you have to somehow muster this up in yourself. I love it. C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, Screwtape Letters, One of the things that he, if you don't, I can't even begin to explain all that, but one of the deceptions that Satan likes to give to us is this. Uh, If we feel like we're not a very loving person, that we should just try and muster up love within ourselves and love people better, right? If we're not very giving, we should just try and muster up givingness, you know, and generosity. But in reality, all you're doing is you're trying to coat over your sin with your own self-righteousness with, once again, all your good deeds are nothing more than filthy rags before him. If you're not a loving person, then you need to gaze upon the one who is the embodiment of love. If you're not a very generous person, you need to look upon the one who laid down his life for you, who gave up the ultimate kingdom. If you're not a very patient person, you need to see the one who not only came and laid down his life, but promises to abide in you and deal with all of your stubbornness and filthiness and disgustingness. You see, whatever, whatever it is you're dealing with, whatever sin is holding you down, whatever weight is holding you back, the answer is not to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. The, the answer is to look unto Jesus. Listen to what Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. So all of us who have, that, who have had that veil removed can see and reflect 
the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. By beholding him, by looking unto him, as the ESV would put it, we're transformed from one degree of glory to the next. If you are not looking unto Jesus and what he has accomplished for you on that cross, you are not being transformed. You're just spraying cologne on a corpse. You're just trying to band-aid a real issue. You have to look unto Jesus. It's the only hope that you will ever have. It is the only thing that you have. If I could encourage you into anything as we move into this new year, I'm not encouraging you to a better you. I'm encouraging you that you die and that Christ live in you. Look unto him and nothing else. Let's pray. Father, I am always grateful to have any opportunity to stand up and preach Christ. And Lord, where there is so much ego and there is so much pride and there is so much evil in me, I am still confident in one thing, that despite all of that, you will be glorified. Lord, I pray for the vision of those in this room, Lord, not, not their eyes, but the eyes of their heart, that they would see you in glory, that they would see you crucified and resurrected on their behalf, and that their hearts would be made into worshipers. That's what your word says that you're seeking after, is those who worship in spirit and in truth. But how often are our eyes turned inward to look at ourselves, to live in despair, to live in pride, never in worship, to our Savior, our Hero, our King, our Lord, our God. So be magnified, and may Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. You guys have a great week and a happy new year. It's not just about the manger where the baby lay.
It's not all about the angels who sing for him that day. It's not all about the shepherds on the bright and shining sun. It's not all about the wise men who traveled from afar. It's about the cross. It's about my sin. It's about how Jesus came to be born once so that we could be born again. It's about the stone that was rolled away so that you and I could have real life someday. It's about the cross. It's not just about the good things this life I've done. It's not all about the treasures or the trophies that I've won. It's not about the righteousness that I find within. 